The following presentation from the Provo Linux User Group, held December 10, 2008, is underwritten by Guru Labs, the trusted source for Linux system administration, network, and security training, gurulabs.com. Streaming and podcast hosting bandwidth for this and many other presentations at podcast.utos.org has been provided by Tier 4. The presentation, titled An Introduction to SE Linux, was presented by Stuart Jansen. small group. I think it's because of the holidays. I don't know. Christmas parties. Right. They were just afraid of the rotten fruit? I guess right. so. Anyway, I think tonight's a really interesting topic. Uh, we have Stuart Jansen here. For, uh, he's a, you're an instructor and a developer at Guru Labs. Cheap build washer. Yeah. yeah, do whatever. Yep. And uh, he's here to discuss um, SE Linux. But before we get started, uh, do you guys have any um, uh, known open positions or anything at the companies you're working for? Anything like that? Things going I'm okay at your companies? Work. Anyone recently get laid off? <laughs> I'm the only one in the room. Well, I got laid off, but I'm fine. Yeah? Well, uh, Omniture's still hiring for for uh, systems guys and for developers. So if you um, are looking for work or know someone who is, especially in the in these uh, economic times, that uh, maybe we can help them out. So looking for really good people. Um, with that, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. It's a very small group tonight, so we'll, we'll go ahead and, and get going. Okay. All right. So for tonight's uh, topic, I'm going to be talking about SE Linux. I just want to take a moment, though, to talk about my employer, Guru Labs, because it's because of their generosity that I'm able to learn this stuff and you know, come here and share it with you. We have lots of great Linux courses. The material that I'm using is actually... Uh, a lot of it is pulled from our 550 Enterprise Linux Security Administration, which we have just recently finished updating with all kinds of good coverage for Kerberos and maybe even Audit D in the near future. So let's talk about what SE Linux is, where it comes from, starting with the NSA. Uh, you might be familiar with them already, the National Security Administration. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We brought a minor as insurance just to be safe. There. <laughs> Harley Pig has Harley Pig has made his entrance. <laughs> okay. So for those that uh, aren't familiar with the NSA, uh, they're a bunch of spies, you know, kind of like the CIA or so on. They're focusing on signal intelligence. Wanted to be able to use Linux, but the security of Linux just wasn't good enough to meet their needs. So they started enhancing it. Uh, a lot of the work was actually based on theoretical research done using an operating system called Flask. And for those of us living here in Utah, that's an interesting detail because Flask was actually created up at the University of Utah. Uh, another interesting detail about SE Linux, when it was first proposed for in, uh, inclusion in the standard kernel, Linus did not like the idea of adopting just one specific security technology 
because there was nothing to guarantee that SE Linux would be the best long-term solution for everybody. And so he insisted on the development of LSM, the Linux Security Modules design, which basically allows you to dynamically load various different uh, models. Now, for example, AppArmor, those that are familiar with the local company Novell and their SUSE product know that AppArmor is the standard solution on Novell operating systems. Hands down, though, my favorite solution is SE Linux. I just think it's a better design. And long term, I think it's going to be the winning solution for most people. But it's important to understand what SE Linux is and what it is not. Okay, first of all, SE Linux does nothing to prevent security holes or just general bugs in your software. Okay. Programmers still can make mistakes. Attackers can still attack holes in the program. It also is not a replacement for standard Unix file permissions or other parts of the standard Unix model. So for example, if you want a firewall, SE Linux could help to make your firewall safer, but it is not going to be a replacement for NetFilter and IP tables. Okay. That said, SE Linux can help to limit the amount of damage from a security hole. For example, Buffalo Overflow or so on, when somebody takes control of your Apache web server, Instead of being able to escalate, upload a rootkit, and get root-level access on your system, the user, the attacker is going to be limited to basically killing Apache, probably not even replacing any of its content, depending on how you've configured it. It does this by controlling access to lots of labeled resources on your system, access to files, directories. Uh, you can actually limit access to ports to sockets, pretty much any kernel object or most kernel objects can be tagged with an SE Linux label and then you can start writing policy to protect those systems. Okay. Which brings us to a good point to discuss some standard terms like discretionary access control versus mandatory access control. Okay. The traditional Unix security model is referred to as discretionary access control because users can change security settings. A user can change file permissions, for example. Or users can easily SU to other accounts. Uh, in a traditional Unix model, you have the all-powerful root user. If you need to be able to do something that only root can do, for example, a web server needs to bind to port 80, the program has to start as root, and then it has to drop its privileges. With SE Linux, on the other hand, instead of having an all-powerful root user that can do anything, you can start writing more fine-grained rules. So for example, you could say, this user is allowed to start web servers, which means that they can bind to port 80, but nothing else. This other user is allowed to modify DNS settings, but nothing else. And so you have an admin responsible for one area, an admin responsible for a different area, and you don't have an all-powerful user. In fact, if you're not careful with SE Linux, you can completely lock yourself out of the system. Okay. SE Linux is kind of a mutt. We're going to see that sometimes you refer to things by many different terms that mean basically the same thing. Okay. That's because it's based on several different theoretical models. Two key concepts, type enforcement and role-based access control. Security rules are based on a label 
often referred to as a context, sometimes also referred to as a type or a domain. And then based on that label, you can say programs running with this label can access files with this label. That's what type enforcement is. And we already talked about role-based access control, where you have fine-grained roles limiting what a particular person's allowed to do. One of the most important parts about dealing with SE Linux is dealing with those labels. So in the slide, I've included an example of the format for a label. In traditional SE Linux, you would have three pieces of information, the identity, the role, and the type. Okay. New in RHEL 5, Red Hat added two new technologies called MLS and MCS. That's where you will see these two extra pieces of information, a sensitivity and a category. MLS stands for multi-level security. Maybe you're already familiar with the government model where you have different levels of security, like confidential and top secret and so on. Very strict rules about who's able to access what and what direction information is able to go. Basically, it can become more classified, but it can't go down the chain. MLS can be used to implement those sorts of rules. Now, unless you have a government contract or you work for the government, you're probably not going to use that. But you might use MCS, multi-category security. Okay. Let's say that you have a couple of projects going on, Apollo and Gemini. You can tag some files as Apollo files, other files as Gemini files, some users as part of the Apollo project, other users as part of the Gemini project, some programs as authorized to modify Apollo data. Different programs are authorized to modify Gemini data. So that's the sort of thing that you might do with MCS. We're going to focus mostly on the type when we're talking about basics of SE Linux, because Red Hat has found that, well, all of this information is theoretically useful. It makes things really complex. And so at least for the short term, we're going to focus on types, build good tools for managing types, build out the knowledge about types, and then eventually start taking advantage of the other parts of the model. Okay. Now, of course, if you were to go work for the NSA, they're already using all of this information. Okay. Another piece of important terminology, there are three states for SE Linux, enforcing, permissive, and disabled mode. Enforcing is exactly what it sounds like. It means that SE Linux has been loaded into the kernel, the policy has been read, it's being evaluated, and it's being enforced. So if the policy says to prevent access, SE Linux will prevent access. Disabled is also what it sounds like. It means turn off SE Linux, don't even load the drivers. So you have a traditional Unix system with traditional Unix permissions. The interesting one is permissive. That means that SE Linux is loaded. It is evaluating its policy, but it does not enforce it. So if the policy says deny access, it will generate a log message saying that it's denied access, but it won't actually deny access. That can be really useful for troubleshooting, for example. Which brings me to basic requirements for SE Linux. You're going to need to have a kernel that supports it. At this point, Red Hat is one of the leading distributions when it comes to SE Linux. 
they ship not only with the SE Linux kernel, enab kernel support enabled, but also with a very complete policy and set of tools for managing that policy. But, SE, but Red Hat isn't the only one that has SE Linux enabled. For example, OpenSUSE 11.1, one of the new features is that they're going to start enabling SE Linux by default in their kernel. You can get versions of Debian that have SE Linux support. You can get a SE Linux support for Ubuntu. You can get it for Gen 2. Gen 2 actually has pretty good SE Linux support. Okay. I'm going to be focusing, though, on Red Hat because they're definitely the leaders right now when it comes to the major Linux distributions and support for SE Linux. Another thing that you need, you need to have a file system that supports SE Linux because it's going to be storing the labels we just talked about as extended attributes in the file system. Your standard Unix file systems, ext2, ext3, xfs, jfs, and so on, can store extended attributes. But if you wanted to use, say, FAT file systems from Windows, you're not going to be able to use SE Linux with that file system. Another useful thing, modified user space tools. We're going to see that some of the core tools like PS and LS and CP and rsync and so on have been modified so that they are aware of SE Linux. Most programs do not need to know about SE Linux, but if you want to be able to analyze a system or if you want to be able to take backups and include SE Linux as part of the backup, then you're going to need to have modified user space programs. So let's talk about some commands for exploring your SE Linux system. One of them is going to be the get enforce command. Let's actually switch over now to the command line so that I can start showing you these. Get enforce is very simple. It tells you what state you're currently in. You'll notice that I am running my system in enforcing mode. This is my recommendation for most people. I have been running my laptop in enforcing mode for about three years now, and I haven't had any real problems for about two years. Okay. When SE Linux first came out in Fedora Core 2, Red Hat had it turned off by default. They were using a policy called strict, which had been written by the NSA, and strict was way too strict. So that helped to give SE Linux a bad name. For Fedora Core 3, and RHEL 5, Red Hat actually wrote their own policy called Targeted, which we'll talk about more in a bit. Targeted was much better, but it still wasn't perfect. If I had to guess, I would guess that about two-thirds of people would be able to run a Fedora Core 3 or RHEL 4 system without significant problems because of SE Linux. But that still means at least a third of all people, a third of all systems, would run into some problem with SE Linux. In RHEL 5, starting with Fedora 6, Fedora Core 6, uh, Red Hat made big changes to the targeted policy, significantly extending it. And if I had to guess, I would guess that at this point, probably 90% of people can probably run SE Linux without any trouble or with only minor problems. If you've tried using SE Linux in the past and it didn't work for you, give it another try. It has come a long way over the years. Now, if you do have a problem, we're going to talk about how to fix it. First step, let's just switch to permissive mode. Okay. So I'll say set enforce zero, 
And now when I run get enforce, you'll notice that it says that I'm in permissive mode. This is something that I will do occasionally. In fact, just yesterday, I was playing with virtualization. And I wanted to be able to read an ISO file off of an external USB hard drive that I just plugged into my laptop. Because of the policy at the moment for SE Linux, my virtual machine was not able to read the file on the USB hard drive. There are two different ways to fix that. What a lot of people end up doing is turning off SE Linux. And I did it temporarily because I was just using the CD image for the next five minutes. But if I had planned on using it permanently, the better recommendation would be to modify the label on the file so that it can be read. I'll talk about how to do that in just a little bit. But first, let's talk about two more quick commands, se status and se info. Okay. Se status, you'll notice, is just a more verbose version of the get enforce command, basically, telling me that se Linux is loaded but is currently in permissive mode. It also tells me where the se Linux file system has been mounted. For the tools to actually talk to SE Linux and interact with it, there needs to be a file system mounted. Generally, you're just going to mount it in the standard location slash SE Linux. Okay. Notice that this also tells me what policy we're using. I mentioned the targeted policy from Red Hat already and the version of that policy. SE info is another command that you can use to find out. You know, find out, for example, the different types of uh, roles the number of constraints, booleans, etc. Now let's get to the good stuff. Labels. The core commands like ls and ps have been modified, adding a new command option, capital Z, that will show SE Linux labels. You might wonder why capital Z, near as I can figure, it's the only letter that wasn't already taken somewhere else. And so this is what it looks like. In my root user's home directory, we have two labels, both of them labeled admin home T. You'll notice that I'm focusing on the last part of the label, the type, because I said that's what's most important in the Red Hat policy. Although there are a couple of other pieces of information. One of them is labeled system U object R, which is pretty normal. That's what you'll see for most things that are owned by root. Another one we see is unconfined U object R. That's a little bit more abnormal. I actually copied that off from another system onto here. And since Linux didn't know what to do with it, it just gave it a, uh, the default label from the USB thumb drive that had pl been plugged in. Let's compare this to slash Etsy. I think it's more interesting there. Okay. Most of slash Etsy, you'll notice, is labeled as Etsy T. Just the generic, this is a system config file. But a couple of these have their own special label. Netconf T for my YPServeConf. Or if I page up, we see uh, stunnel etct. The stunnel file has its own config type. Our syslogconf has the syslogconf T. My Samba directory has the Samba etct. Uh, Question? Do these, do these types on a directory apply to things below the directory as well, or does each file mm -hmm. have its own? We're going to see how you can control file labels. 
when we talk about file context or F context, and we'll see that it depends. Uh, the label on a directory can influence the label of files created underneath it, but you can also write rules so that a specific file always gets a specific label. Okay. Now we mentioned the fact that Red Hat created a policy called targeted. You're starting to see one of the details about the targeted policy. Instead of protecting everything, Red Hat decided to target the applications that get attacked most often. So for example, Apache. Attackers love to go after Apache. There are a lot of SE Linux rules protecting it. Same thing for Samba and NFS and DNS. And over time, Red Hat has added more rules so that, for example, they now have the ability to protect your syslog conf t, your yp serve conf t, and so on. But you'll notice that still, most of these programs aren't targeted. They're still treated mostly like a normal Unix program with normal Unix permissions. Okay. Let's look at the ps command. I'm going to say psez. E to get every program Z because I want the SE Linux label. Okay. You'll notice that most of these are labeled as unconfined T. Now back in RHEL 4, that meant SE Linux didn't touch them. That they were just purely, completely normal Unix programs. In RHEL 5, the truth is a little bit more complicated because there are some universal rules that every program has to obey. Little things like you can't execute your own stack. Now, that's a standard way for an attacker to take control of a program is to inject code onto the stack and then jump to the stack and start executing it. Okay. So it would be more correct in RHEL 5 to call this mostly unconfined T, but I guess I didn't feel like renaming it. Okay. Now as I page up through the list, Eventually, we will come to programs that do have their own label. For example, my Gettys are running as Getty T. Or GDM, the graphical login program, is running as XDMT, or so on. So a lot of dealing with SE Linux boils down to determining the label on a file and making sure that that label, that context or type, grants permission to a program to access the file. Okay. I, I forgot to mention, when you're talking about a program that is running a process, you don't talk about the type of a process. Instead, you talk about the domain of a process. So technically, you say this domain has access to these types. But they both boil down to the same thing. They're a label. To modify these labels, we can use commands like shikon, restorecon, or fix files. Okay. So let's go through a classic example of what might go wrong. I'm going to create my own index.html. In other words, it's a web page. It's going to be all nice and pretty once I get it exactly the way I want it. Okay. And then I'm going to move this out to my web server so that everybody else in the world can see it too. 
I'll say move home S Jansen desktop index.html to var www html fire up my web server and try to access that web page that I just created. So if I go to localhost, oh, it worked because I forgot I'm in permissive mode. Let's set enforce one to go back to enforcing mode. Okay. I, go, I try to go to my web page and I get a forbidden message. Okay. Well, silly me, of course I got a forbidden message. I forgot to change the file permissions, didn't I? Okay. So we'll go to var www.html, we'll do an ls minus l, but it is world readable. The web server should be able to access it, right? And then I remember SE Linux, and I do an ls capital Z, and here I notice the problem. Because the file was created in my home directory, it's labeled as a user home T, and one of Red Hat's policy rules is the web server must never, under any circumstances, be able to access user files. That's why it's being forbidden. I need to change it to something that it can access by saying, shikan httpd sys content t index.html, well, shikan minus t, because I'm changing the type. There we go. And now when I try to load the page, it works. The most commonly used types you will memorize over time. If you are a web developer, you'll probably memorize the web developer types. If you are responsible for DNS, you'll probably memorize all of the bind types. But that's still an awful lot to memorize. There are actually hundreds of rules about what types to give to files. You're probably not going to memorize everything. So there's got to be some ways to cheat, right? Let me show you one of them. You can say shikan dash dash reference equals, and then tell it to look at a file or a directory. So I'm, for example, saying var www. I know that that's labeled correctly because I just installed the RPM, so it, it's got to be right. <coughs> Give the same label to my index.html. Okay. And now you'll notice that it didn't just change the type, it changed all of the information. It's now system U object R HTTPD syscontent T. Okay. It's a little bit better, but it's still not as easy as we're hoping, is it? There's a third option the restoreCon command. The reason I got in trouble was because I created this file in my home directory. And it got labeled automatically based on where it was created. In a home directory, it gets labeled as a user home T. Well, what if I could look at all these default label rules and say, give this file a new default label based on its new location? That's what restorecon does. Okay. 
we're not actually going to see a change because, well, RestoreCon's putting it to the same thing Shikan put it to just a moment ago. Okay? But if you think things are broken and you want to fix them, here's a really quick way to do it. A third option is the fix files command. This is actually a shell script that works similar to the RestoreCon command. Both RestoreCon and fix files can go through and recursively relabel a whole bunch of files based on their location. One of the differences is, instead of looking at the policy file, the fix files command can actually look at an RPM. So you could say, look at the label on the file in this RPM, give the same label to the file on my system right now. Okay. Maybe my policy database actually is wrong, but the RPM was correct, and so I need to pull it out of there. But better yet, let me show you how to cheat. In the story, the reason I got in trouble was the MV command. I moved a file from my home directory over to my web server directory. That means that all of its security context went with it. The owner stayed the same. The Unix file permissions stayed the same. The SE Linux file label stayed the same. What if I had used CP? Using CP, I would have created a brand new file based on the directory it was created. It would have been given its default label, and I wouldn't even have to worry about SE Linux. And so there's a trick. If you want to just not worry about SE Linux, using CP a lot of times will just save you the hassle. Yes. And so when you create a new file, you're creating a new inode, and so it has to be given a label. That it goes to look at the default labeling rules to give this new inode its label. So if we have anybody listening at home, Doran's comment was that the same thing will happen with normal Unix permissions. If you move or CP a file, your normal Unix permissions will be preserved with move, but they'll get brand new ones if you use CP. For the most part, I'm not a fan of graphical tools, but let me show you one that I really do like. System config SE Linux. This was something created by Red Hat to help manage an SE Linux system. This is a great way to explore an SE Linux system or to get simple things done quickly. Don't worry, though, I'm going to show you how to do it by hand from the command line in just a moment. Okay. Starting off, on our first screen, we see that you can check the current status of SE Linux, whether or not it has been loaded, and whether or not it's currently enforcing. Okay. I see that at the moment my system is enforcing. When I reboot, it will enforce. Notice this little checkbox down here, relabel on next reboot. This is one of the reasons that I recommend always running in either enforcing or permissive mode. When you run in disabled mode, files don't get labeled. 
And so if you ever decide that you want to turn SE Linux on, you've got a whole bunch of files that have to have labels added to them. The best way to deal with that is to click this little checkbox, reboot the system, and when it comes back up, very early in the boot process, it'll go through and relabel everything on your system, giving it a default label. Depending on how many files you have, that could take a while. On my new laptop, with a really nice hard drive, really nice processor, I can relabel the entire system in about 10 minutes. On my old laptop, with a much larger collection of files, it took me more in the neighborhood of an hour to relabel everything. So it might be something that you want to avoid. We have a question. So this relabeling and reporting to the policy, getting information on what's going from the policy? Actually, you notice <coughs> just two clicks down, file labeling. We're about to see where it's based on. But before we do that, I just want to show you, if you wanted to make a change from the command line, where is the state of SE Linux stored on a Red Hat system, Etsy sysconfig SE Linux? And you'll notice here that I can say SE Linux equals enforcing or disabled or permissive. Okay. This is also actually where I would specify what policy to use. You'll notice that I'm using Red Hat's targeted policy. No, actually, if you want to do it by hand, you would create a hidden file in the root directory called .autorelabel. Okay. And if you wanted to find out how to remember that, other than looking at documentation, it's actually one of the RC scripts. If you look at the etcrc.drc sysinit, there's a code right there. There's code right there where it's checking for the existence of the .auto relabel file. Okay. Now let's talk about another aspect of SE Linux, Booleans. Okay. You can have parts of the policy that are optional and can be turned on or off. Okay. For example, I love Apache. Let's look at all of the Apache Booleans. Okay. For example, allow HTTPD to run SSI executables in the same domain as system CGI scripts. Okay. Or allow HTTPD to act as an FTP server by listening on the FTP port. Notice that both of these are turned off by default. We don't want Apache acting like an FTP server when the admin doesn't expect it. We don't want Apache to be able to run random CGIs in a less strict environment when the administrator doesn't expect it. We want to have tight security by default. But maybe that's a problem. Maybe you need your web server to be an FTP server at the same time. Well, in the past, before you knew about this, you would try to turn on the right module in Apache, try to restart Apache. It wouldn't, get wor it wouldn't work. You'd get frustrated and turn off SE Linux. Now you know where to go looking if you're having a problem. Go look at the Booleans. Maybe there's one that you need to change. Okay. Just one problem with this screen. In older versions of SE Linux, or of, of uh, 
Red Hat systems, for example, Red Hat Enterprise Linux version 5, or older versions of Fedora, when you click on the checkbox, it takes forever to change. Now you notice in Fedora <coughs> 9 and Fedora 10, when you click on the checkbox, it changes immediately. But watch the little spinning cursor. Okay. That's actually make, waiting for the change to happen in the background. On RHEL 5, that's how long it would take you to actually see a change to the checkbox. If you didn't, and it, and it doesn't have the spinning cursor either. It doesn't give any feedback. So if you didn't expect that, and you get impatient, you start click, click, click to try and get its attention, who knows what state it'll be in. Just be patient. Click and wait and wait and wait and wonder why the heck it takes so long. Wait a little bit more, and then it'll catch up with you. Okay. Let's say that you have looked through all of the booleans up here, and you can't find one that looks like what you need. Well, you haven't looked hard enough. One of the booleans up here is turn off SE Linux protection for Apache. In other words, I love SE Linux. I want to use it to protect most of my system. It's just Red Hat's policy for Apache doesn't do it for me. I need to turn off SE Linux for just this one program. You can do that by just changing a single Boolean. Now, file labeling. Okay, the question was, how does the system know what label to give to a file by default? It just goes through a list of regular expressions, one by one, until it finds the best match. Okay? Where best match, as usual, means the longest regular expression that matches the file name. Okay? This is something that's new in RHEL 5. Okay? And it's a big improvement, in my opinion. A lot of companies like to do things their own way. Okay? For example, I like to store all of my virtual machines on a dedicated partition in slash vert. Okay? Now, back in RHEL 4, no way I'd be able to do that. You have to put it where Red Hat expects, or you have to turn off SE Linux. Or you have to write your own policy, but you know that's kind of more than you can expect of most people. But now in RHEL 5, all I need to do is I need to just say slash vert dot star. All files should be given a type of, and I would need to go look it up, vert image t, for example. Okay. And that gets list added to the list of various rules. And now from now on, whenever I create a new virtual machine on my laptop, it will be automatically labeled correctly to work with KVM and Zen and so on. Okay. I've actually been meaning to get around to doing that for the last week. So if nothing else, this presentation has helped fix one problem with my laptop configuration. Okay. Something else that you can do. Okay. SE Linux actually has its own concept of users, which need to be mapped to Linux accounts. We talked about, for example, system U or user U. You saw that one a little bit ago. Okay. Then you can map these to MLS and MCS ranges. For now, we'll just skip past that since we're focusing on the basics of SE Linux, and most people probably won't use MLS or MCS. Same thing on the next tab where we can 
map of various translations, and on the next one, where we can say S0, that actually stands for top secret or whatever. Network ports, another thing that you'll notice from this tool. You can specify these are the web server ports, 80 and 443. The FTP port is 21. The SSH port is 22. The SMTP port is 25. And then in the policy rules, you can say web servers combined to web server ports, email servers combined to email server ports, and so on. But what if your company is another one of those oddballs that wants to run on a different port? Maybe for you, port 4376 is a web server port. Well, you can come in here and you can add that port to the list of web server ports. And then a SE Linux will start letting, a, letting Apache listen on a different port than what Red Hat expected. Okay. Something else that's new in RHEL 5, modular policy. Okay. Back in RHEL 4, you could basically install one big binary blob of policy rules or nothing at all. You would have a bunch of rules for programs that you might never install. But now in RHEL 5, as you install, system, install software, it will also add pluggable pieces of policy rules to the policy database. The theory is that third-party vendors can now start shipping SE Linux rules with their software. So for theor theor uh, you know, theoretically, Oracle could include SE Linux rules to harden their Oracle databases, and Red Hat wouldn't have to do anything to enable that. They've already made modular policy possible. Okay. So how would we do some of the same stuff from the command line? First of all, Booleans. There's a pair of commands, get SE bool, and obviously the companion set se bool. Get se bool minus a will print all of the booleans. The problem with doing things from the command line like this, you don't have that nice English sentence like allow the web server to bind to the FTP port. Instead, you have wacky things like user ping. What about user ping? Or zen use NFS. Or let's see if we can find a really fun one. Some of these Booleans just make absolutely no sense if you don't know what they mean. <coughs> well, transition, there's a allow unconfined QMU transition. You'll see reference to transition a lot. What does it mean? It means changing from one domain to another. Okay? Normally, programs are only allowed to stay in their domain. When they start a child, the child is in the same domain. But if you're granted transition, you can change from one domain to another domain. Okay. If we were to find the one to stop protecting SE Linux, it would actually be HTTPD disable trans, okay. or something close to that. Actually, this is Fedora 10. I don't know what changes they've made to the policy yet in Fedora 10. You're talking about the unified one? Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? No, there's a... Sure unified on, uh, are off now. 
Yeah. Kind of a cool thing. Well, in RHEL 5, there would have been a, it's either an HTTPD enable trans or disable trans or something like that, and you change the Boolean so that it doesn't transition to a new domain. In other words, it doesn't go into the web server domain and it doesn't get limited the way a web server gets limited. The rest of the commands that we saw, as far as writing default label rules and translating uh, MLS and MCS and managing ports and all that, is done by the se-manage command. So for example, if I were to say se-manage fcontext minus L, this is going to list all of the rules for labeling files, which is quite a lot of them. Just out of curiosity, you might wonder how many are there? 2,784 rules. Now that isn't a list of all the types because some of those rules will give the same type and some types actually aren't applied by any of the default rules. But there are hundreds of types to choose from. Another useful piece of information, getting error messages out of SE Linux. Back in RHEL 4, the way that you would look at log files and find error messages was by gripping varlog messages for AVC. In RHEL 5, if AuditD is installed and turned on, AuditD will actually redirect those messages to a different destination. They'll end up going to the varlog audit audit audit.log file. I was running out of space on my slide, so I just combined the two. Look at varlog messages or look at varlog audit audit.log, depending on what system you're on. Now you might wonder, AVC, okay, I could just memorize that. I recommend just memorizing, it's the easiest thing to do. But you might be curious, what does it stand for? It actually stands for the authorization vector cache. It's part of the kernel that caches SE Linux policy decisions so as to make to allow things to run faster. Okay. That's what AVC stands for. Aren't you glad you asked? New in RHEL 5, though, we've got a much better solution. Instead of grepping for AVC messages and scratching your head trying to figure out what the heck is that thing trying to say, there's now something called SE Troubleshoot, which will read AVC messages and give you more verbose information. In fact, it'll even give a recommendation on how to make the problem go away. In order to use SE Troubleshoot, you're going to need to install some RPMs. The SE Troubleshoot RPM is going to give you a graphical interface for viewing this information. Maybe some of you have noticed a little gold star up at the top of your screen if you're using a Red Hat-based system. For example, I kept some error messages just for us to look at. You notice that I can click on the gold star, and then up pops a program that lets me view various messages. We see that SE Linux is preventing npviewer.bin, that's actually the Flash player, from accessing some file in my home directory. Okay. There's actually a known problem with the SE Linux policy at the moment. They've made Firefox even more strict. And right now, it's getting in the way of Flash. There's a Boolean that you can turn off to make your system a little bit less secure. My personal 
approach so far has been to keep the system secure and just let Flash be a little bit broken because I don't care enough. Under that, you'll notice that there is a detailed description saying, what does this actually mean? SE Linux has denied access, yada, yada, yada. I won't read all of it. And then there's a part called allowing access. This is how to make the problem go away. In this case, it recommends using RestoreCon. I don't say that this is how to fix it, though, because sometimes the fix will basically be completely turn off all security. Shoot yourself in the head. Well, yeah, you're not going to be able to do much in the way of dangerous things once you've been shot in the head, but it's probably not a good idea. That's why when you look at this, don't just do what it says. Put your thinking cap on and ask yourself, what the heck does that mean? Does it make sense? Maybe go online, ask for some help. Hopefully you're paying for a support contract. Contact Red Hat and ask them for some advice. Okay. In this case, RestoreCon, I know that's not going to do anything to fix the file. So I'm just going to ignore this for now. There's additional information. The label for the program that was trying to access the file, the label for the file that it was trying to access, in other words, the source context and the target context, various other pieces of information. This is all the sort of information that you'd want to give to Red Hat support if you're asking them for their advice on how to actually fix this problem. Now, GUIs are nice and all, but what if this is a real server? Probably don't want to be going around clicking on little gold stars on all my web servers. That's why there's also the SE troubleshoot dash server RPM, which will put information in my log files. I can grep for the string SE alert in varlog messages, and it is going to give me messages like this. SE Linux is preventing NP viewer bin from accessing this file. For complete message, run se alert minus l, and then there'll be a UUID. You can just copy that entire command. Let's copy this one. And paste it. Let's run that through less. And you'll notice that it's exactly the same thing we saw in the GUI a moment ago. A summary, a detailed description, advice on how to make the problem go away, more detailed information. Another option, se alert minus l backslash star. That's going to give me all of the messages currently in varlog messages. You could also configure your system to email this to you so that instead of logging into systems, every time that there's an SE Linux denial message, it emails some administrators and tells them about it. That's probably a good idea on a production system, on a development or a testing server. Maybe not, because every once in a while, you might have a problem or Red Hat might have a problem with their SE Linux config, and it'll generate literally hundreds of denial messages in a matter of seconds. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was playing with a system, and I botched 
something, and I started copying several gigs of files, and the system ate itself alive by filling, I think it was like 40 gigs of log file space over the course of half an hour without me noticing. Imagine 40 gigs of email messages being generated. Useful on production, maybe not on your testing or development servers. You know, that actually, I, I remember something like that. Yeah, I think you can. What was the question? Can you, can you filter the messages so that certain people get certain denials and other people get other denials? I think I saw that the, there's the ability to blacklist. I don't know if I saw the ability to whitelist. But it, it's something that would be documented. Yep. Okay. Any other questions? We're actually going through this much faster this time since I've got a much quieter group, but that's good. I guess it means we get to go home earlier. Okay. Now let's talk about the process that you would go through if you have a problem and you think SE Linux might be involved. Okay. You actually know all of this. I'm not going to teach you anything new at this point. I'm just going to bring it all together. Okay. First of all, when you're having a problem and you think that SE Linux is involved, switch to permissive mode quickly and see if the problem goes away. If the problem goes away, that means that SE Linux is involved. If the problem does not go away, quit blaming SE Linux and find the real cause already. Okay? I recommend switching to permissive mode instead of looking at log files because it's the only way to be absolutely certain. I've actually run into problems that did not generate log messages until I switched to permissive mode. And while I was in permissive mode, it also generated a log message with a denial. So obviously Red Hat's engineers decided that certain types of denials should just be filtered out, never go to the log message at all. That's how I learned the hard way. Permissive mode is the only way to be absolutely certain that SE Linux isn't involved. Or there's an SE Linux context preventing you from logging. Or there's an SE Linux preventing you from logging. In this case, it wasn't. It was straight up. They decided to filter all NTP-related messages. So let's say that SE Linux is involved. Okay. The next thing that we're going to think is, what file has the wrong label? What do I need to fix? Looking at your log messages is probably a good way to find that. If not var log messages, then the program probably will tell you. Apache has its error log, and various other programs have their, their log files. And we've talked about how to restore files to the correct label using three different programs, Shikan, RestoreCon, and Fix Files. Do you remember how to use the Shikan file? What would the basic command look like? Anybody remember? Other than Clint? Do I count? Okay, well, the. Yeah. Man, Shikan is a very good first step. Okay. Shikan minus T is what I'm looking for. Or Shikan dash dash reference. Okay. So, what does Shikan minus T do? 
gives it a specific type. Okay? This is a beautiful thing because it lets you create very small tweaks. Okay? For example, one of the problems that you might run into, you might need to allow your NFS server, your Samba server, your FTP server, and your web server to all access the same file. Okay? If you label it as HTTPD syscontent-t, though, only your web server can access it. So you need a different label that lets other things access it. Shikon minus T, public content T. If you only memorize one type, that's the one that I would memorize. Okay. It's not global access, but it is a large collection of file serving programs. NFS and Samba and so on. Clint makes a good point. This is read only. What if you need read write access? If you only memorize two labels, here is the second one that I would memorize. Public content RWT. Watch out, though, because this might not be enough. You might also need to change a Boolean. For example, if you're working with Samba, you want to allow the NFS server to have write access, and you want Samba to have write access. Well, Samba's not going to allow write access by default if it's public content T. It's only going to allow read-only access. So you need to change it to RWT, and then you need to go change a Samba Boolean that says Samba's allowed to modify files in a user's home directory. Question. Well, first okay. comment. It seems like I remember all this is <coughs> documented in the comments in your Samba config file. So if you forget this, you can go look in the top 50 lines of your Samba config and it's all kind of explained there. Yep. My question is, the types that you're using here are predefined by the policy. Yep. So what if you want to create a new type? You're getting ahead of us just a moment, which is actually going to be on the next slide. The answer is, I'm not going to tell you tonight, but maybe sometime I will later. <laughs> okay. Uh, we already talked about Shikan dash dash reference, meaning find something that is correct and just copy the same label to the other one, but without as much typing, depending on. RestoreCon is another option. <coughs> so what does RestoreCon minus R var www mean? And how does it know the default type? Yeah, it's defined in the policy. We looked at the system config SE Linux or SE managed F context where you can modify that. This is a sledgehammer. Sometimes a sledgehammer is the right job tool for the job. When you need to tear down a wall, sledgehammer is going to get it done quickly. But when all you need to do is make a minor repair to your coffee table, you're probably going to do more damage with a sledgehammer than you are going to do good. Okay. If you had any little tweaks, Shikan minus T, public content T, so that you could share with a broader number of programs, RestoreCon could end up throwing all of those little tweaks out the window and bringing all the problems back. So sometimes RestoreCon will make your life easier. Sometimes it'll make it harder. Be careful with it. 
I have never measured it. It's not really noticeable. Uh, it's an extended attribute. Most labels are in the neighborhood of what? 15 bytes or so. So it adds maybe 15 bytes per file. So but like, but you wouldn't. Oh, yeah, the policy is stored. Actually, it's just du minus sh, etsy, se Linux, and we'll grab the entire directory. So the entire thing is about 46 megs. But that's more than just the policy itself. That's. Also, other things like an explanation of what the Booleans mean and so on. In the greater scheme of things, unless you're doing embedded development, you're not going to notice. You may have mentioned this, and I just think that but how do you get a list of the types that are available? Uh, yeah, I didn't mention it. I showed you how to find the default label rules. SE manage, F context. Minus L is what I showed you. Uh, SE search, I didn't mention because I need to spend more time with it. But SE search, I believe, could tell you that. Uh, if SE search can't tell you, then the only way to absolutely know would be to start reading the policy. Okay. Thankfully, most of the time, though, that isn't necessary. Uh, one of the things that I was going to mention. Man pages. We've already seen that there's a man page for the tools like Shikan, but there's also man pages for different programs and parts of the policy. So, for example, if you wanted to find out things related to Apache, you'd say man httpd se Linux, and it's going to talk about things like httpd syscon 10t. Or if you have CGIs, you're going to want to set them to script exec T. If you need read-write access, syscontent RWT, and so on. Talks about some of the important Booleans. For those that aren't familiar with the apropos command, this is a real help. Just say apropos SE Linux, and there's a list of all of the man pages related to SE Linux. And remember, when you install software, it installs man pages, which means it'll probably end up adding some SE Linux-related man pages at the same time. Okay. So that was step two. We know that SE Linux has a problem. We think maybe that it's the label on a file that needs to be changed. <laughs> what if it isn't a problem with a label? Instead, it's an actual policy rule that's getting in the way. Well, then the next option you remember is Booleans. Go look at the Booleans and see if there's one that you need to change. Okay? We saw that you can do that with the GUI, System Config SE Linux, and that it has a nice English description of what each Boolean means. We saw that the man page will also describe what some of the Booleans mean. And we saw that if you want to do things from the command line, get sebool and set sebool are the way to do it. Okay. This is really useful in shell scripts, for example. 
or say puppet or so on. One thing to watch out though, with set se bool, include the capital P. That makes it the change permanent instead of temporary. Okay? If you just say set se bool httpd disable trans equals one, you'll be fine until you reboot. But when you reboot, it'll go back to the default settings. The minus p will also write to a config file so that it may, becomes persistent or permanent. Yep. Is there a case where there are multiple policies affecting one file, or it's just about one policy or one file? Um, there is. I. I right. It's rules in the policy. I, I know what you meant. Um, different rules can be about different things. So you could have one rule that talks about read access, a different rule that talks about write access, in which case, yes, both of them would apply. I don't believe that you could have two rules with the same test where you're, you know, you're looking at this particular uh, object and this particular verb and they are all exactly the same. I think that's a conflict, but I've never tried doing it, so I don't know. Again, we go back to the SE search command, which I really need to spend more quality time with. Uh, according to a coworker, it can do it, but I can't show you how because I haven't learned it myself yet. One of the things I'll mention here, just as you're commenting about it, um, a lot of the times you're going to find those errors are going to show up when you do the SE troubleshoot command, and they're going to appear. You're going to see those, and those are the ones you're mostly concerned about anyway. Mm -hmm. Looking for future planning, that might be something SE search will help with. But yep. as far as solving a problem, system can, I mean, uh, system, excuse me, uh, SE troubleshoot will help you solve mm -hmm. most of those problems. Yeah. Everything that I'm teaching you tonight is everything I have ever needed to know in order to work with SE Linux and a little more. Uh, that doesn't mean that I know everything yet. For example, I need to learn more about the SE search command. Uh, there's some new tools in Fedora 10 that I still haven't played with, so I need to learn about those. But everything I'm teaching you tonight is everything I've ever needed to know. Okay. Let's say that you looked through all of the Booleans, and that wasn't what you needed. Maybe you needed to change something else. For example, a port number. You need to allow Apache to bind to port 82 for some reason. Okay. How would you do that? Again, with the GUI system config SE Linux, or from the command line, the SE manage command. Okay. The next step, if that's not good enough, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to write my own policy? Okay. Three years ago, I would have called this superhuman and said that most administrators should not be expected to do something like that. <coughs> These days, it's much better documented so that it's actually in the realm of possibility for a competent administrator to start writing his own policy. In fact, with some of the new tools that Red Hat's working on, it might someday actually become easy to write policy. Okay. When I gave this presentation to Slug, 
one of the offers that I made was to come back at some point in the future, sometime next year, say like February or so, and give a presentation about more advanced SE Linux topics like writing policy and using the new tools in Fedora 10 and so on. If there's the interest from Plug, I would be willing to come back and do that again. So I will say, for now, coming to a lug near you. The final step when you're troubleshooting SE Linux is to ask yourself, okay, have I reached a point where I have to turn off SE Linux? I think everybody should have SE Linux turned on if possible. I think that for most people, it is possible. But for some people, your needs are just too specific. They can't be met yet. And so you might have to turn off SE Linux on a handful of systems. That doesn't make you a bad person. That does not make your system insecure. Okay? You might be a little bit less secure than you would have been if you had SE Linux turned on. But you know what? You're still using Linux. You're still using a Unix-based operating system. And it has been good enough for most people for decades. So if you have to, turning off SE Linux is acceptable. I just really recommend give it a try. It has improved a lot. And you can probably actually keep it running. In the past, most administrators have turned off SE Linux because of pure superstition. They don't know SE Linux, so they fear SE Linux, and they turn it off. When your job is to keep a system running 24-7, that's reasonable. But now you know a little bit more about SE Linux. Hopefully you don't fear it quite as much, and now you can make an informed decision. If you decide to turn it off, it won't be because you're afraid of it. It'll be because you understand it, and you've decided that you have to turn it off after trying every other possibility. Just a little bit about what's coming in the future. Some changes that have been made to SE Linux. For example, the disable trans is actually going away because it's not the best solution. We said that trans stands for transition. So it's changing from one domain to another. We said that you can tell Apache not to go into the web server domain, but it's still stuck in some domain. It's still going to be in the init script domain, actually, which means all of the files that it creates are not going to be labeled as web server files. They're going to be created as init script files. And if you ever decide to turn SE Linux back on for Apache, that's going to be a problem. You're going to have to relabel all those files to give them the HTTPD syscontent T. That's why one of the new features that's been added to the latest versions of SE Linux, and I think this actually made it into Fedora 10. I haven't double-checked yet, but I think it's in Fedora 10, is permissive domains. That means instead of switching the entire system to permissive mode, You can be in enforcing mode for most of the system, but a specific domain can be in permissive mode. So Apache still labels files as HTTPD syscontent T as they get created, but none of the policy rules actually apply to Apache. So Apache is still just your standard Unix system. The goal, of course, being that this is a temporary fix, that you spend a little time in permissive mode, and then you write your own little policy module to fix the whatever problem there is, add it to the system, and you can go back to enforcing mode so that you have SE Linux continuing to protect everything on the system. Another interesting detail, XGuest. This was actually shipped for the first time with Fedora 8. 
but it was kind of a preview release. It was a little bit bumpy, and it's still being perfected. But XGuest is a really cool idea. It's for creating kiosk-style systems. When you log in, you go into, instead of the user domain, you go into the XGuest domain. And you're only allowed to do certain things. For example, you might be allowed to launch Firefox. You might be allowed to connect to web server ports so that you can surf the web or whatever. But you're not allowed to connect to HTTP or to SMTP ports. In other words, you can't start sending email or so on. There's actually a set of Booleans that can control XGuest. So maybe you don't want your XGuest users to be able to surf the web. You just want them to be able to run a program to check their enrollment if they're at, a, say, a college. You know, this is a university kiosk. Okay. The great thing about this, as compared to most kiosks, is that you have much, much, much more fine-grained security. You don't have to worry about people being able to find some backdoor, run some program. It's very locked down based on the policy. They're only able to read a handful of files or run a handful of programs. XGuest actually includes more than just this. In addition to the SE Linux portions, they also did a little bit of extra setup. Wrote, for example, a custom PAM module so that every XGuest user has their own tempfs-based home directory. So you might log in, download files, or so on. As soon as you log out, the home directory just disappears, and all of those files go away. So you don't have to worry about one person's bank account cookie being available when the next person walks up and logs into the computer and looks at all their cookies. Okay. You can have multiple XGuest users logged in at the same time if you're coming in. Actually, not XGuest, but uh, just guest users without the ability to run graphical programs have tempfs-based temp home directories for all of them. Although it's technically the same username, they're still not going to be able to access each other's files. Okay. XGuest is... Not fully baked yet, but very cool, and with just a little bit of work, could make some pretty interesting systems. Another interesting thing going on with SE Linux, NetLabel and SE PostgreSQL. You can actually, with NetLabel, apply security labels to packets as they go through the network, so that when you're in one domain on a client system and you access a server, all of the packets you generate will be in that domain, and the server can make decisions about what you're allowed to access based on what SE Linux domain you're in. Okay. Right now, this is not encrypted or any way to protect it. So this has to be a fully trusted machine talking to a trusted server over an isolated network to prevent spoofing. My personal opinion is, though, it's only a matter of time before somebody adds some strong cryptography to validate those contexts. And so eventually, we might be able to, from anywhere in the world, extend SE Linux from a trusted domain to a trusted server. SE PostgreSQL is related to this. Okay. When you're connecting to your database server, instead of limiting your access to a specific file, you can actually ac limit access to specific rows in the database based on labels. SE Linux is seriously cool, at least in theory. haven't played with it personally to find out how cool it is in the real world. They're still working on it, some is my impression, but sounds really interesting. Okay. And that is a quick introduction to some basics of SE Linux. Any questions before we call it a night?
Uh, see, now, here's where we're going to disagree, because my personal opinion is that Red Hat Enterprise Linux is one of the most usable of available operating systems. Uh, I have not spent a significant amount of time on other systems. I can tell you pretty much, though, right now what you're going to run into. Uh, on a SUSE system, you can get SE Linux kernels, but you're not going to have any policy rules or anything else to really help you, because they're just barely starting to wake up to the fact that AppArmor was not a good choice. I probably shouldn't have just said that. Uh, Novell has not yet admitted that AppArmor was a mistake, but they did fire all of their AppArmor developers, which tends to indicate to me that things might be changing. Uh, on Ubuntu systems, uh, there is basic policy, but it, because Ubuntu decided to go with AppArmor instead of SE Linux by default, there hasn't been a lot of work on the policies for it. Uh, so you'll be able to do basic things. As I understand it, that's changing. Yeah. Too, so. Yeah. Uh, actually, you might know Christer uh, Edwards. Thank you. Uh, one of the local Ubuntu guys. He has done a lot of the pushing and nagging to make sure that Ubuntu would have SE Linux support. And so he's part of the reason that you're going to have at least some support for SE Linux on Ubuntu. Like I said, Gentoo is actually surprising one of the systems that uh, has some concern for SE Linux. So if you still think that Gentoo is a viable system, you might check that out. And then there are smaller third-party products. Uh, actually, there's a company called Tresys, T-R-E-S-Y-S. Uh, they cre help to create a lot of the tools for SE Linux also. I, what's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have no idea how to actually pronounce it, but I'm pretty sure you're not right. <laughs> um, honestly, though, right now, Red Hat and Fedora really are the only ones that have been going after SE Linux for a long time with real dedicated resources. Uh, I suspect that other people are eventually going to change that. Clint says that that's already starting to change with Ubuntu. Uh, actually, Debian too. Depending on you know, Debian is a, a giant chaotic amalgamation of varying degrees of quality. Uh, and my understanding is that parts of Debian have very good SE Linux support, and of course, other parts of Debian probably have zero SE Linux support at all. Yeah. 40 of them are web application servers, 20 of them are static application servers, and I don't have different policies. I think that's maybe what you were getting at with maybe NetLabel, where I could have maybe a centralized policy server. No, that is not NetLabel. Oh, okay. No. What, what you're hoping for something is, you're hoping for something more like Active Directory, where you have all of your security information in a centralized... Well, not necessarily Active Directory. The, the, not, the, not the same implementation, but the... Active Directory, while it might have problems with some of the implementation details, is a great theory. Well, wouldn't Papa be able to do something like that? Uh, yeah, you. I think that might be more. Have you heard of an implementation for SE Linux 
in all the time that I've been teaching SE Linux, you're only the second person that's ever asked, and it's only in the last six months that I've started to be asked. What that says to me is, at this point, I'm starting to see a trend, which means that Red Hat might be starting to see a trend, meaning it might be coming up at some point in the future. But up until now, nobody has really I think people been thinking about that as far as. And certainly, Omager has a very large enterprise advantage. Mm -hmm. We're actually starting to be interested in SE Linux and yep. how we can implement it. Right now, we have an off everywhere because yep. it's too hard to manage. And so I was wondering if you, you know, obviously there's management tools, or I think it'd be a great opportunity for somebody to launch a project if there's not one already to, you know, to help with that. <laughs> you know, as it happens, uh, there's a great, there's a sudden pool of Utah developers. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Uh, SE Linux has been growing slowly, maturing slowly over many years, and it's only recently that it's really starting to reach the point of maturity that a lot of people might start feeling comfortable with it. In the past, it was just the people that needed the highest degree of security or people like me that want to be out there on the cutting edge. This is exactly the sort of feedback that you should be giving. You know, uh, I don't know if you... You use Red Hat products. If you do, you want to be talking to your Red Hat representative. You want to be filing bugs in Bugzilla. You want to be you know, maybe even join, getting some of your key administrators on the uh, developer list to start expressing your concerns. Uh, because my impression, and this is completely non-scientific. This is purely based on my personal experience. My personal experience has been that the really big organizations haven't cared until recently. Uh, depends on your definition of auditing. <coughs> right. Uh, SE Linux lays a significant amount of the framework necessary to have very fine-grained auditing. And there is auditing in the form of log messages generated. So for example, when I switched to permissive mode, there was a log message generated saying this user ID number at this time, switch to permissive mode, so on. Uh, and if you have all of that going to your central logging system, you could be the one extracting it right now. If there are products to automatically track all of that as part of some larger integrated system, I'm not aware of it. But I've also never gone looking for it. So, uh, maybe this is the point where you would start looking at some of the the smaller companies that provide services related to SE Linux. Tresis is the one that I really would recommend looking at. I, I would not be surprised if they do have some tools in that neighborhood because they do seem to be even farther, a little bit out ahead of Red Hat now. Any other questions? Not noticeable. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1% or something. In other words, it, it's barely even a statistical blip. So. Yep. You gave kind of a scary warning at the beginning that if you set things up a certain way that uh, you could be locked out of things. You're not actually permanently locked out as you could go in as long as you boot a kernel without any SE Linux support, 
Actually, you know what? That was wasn't that one of my yeah. You don't even have to boot from a different disk. Uh, you can just modify the kernel arguments, adding enforcing equals zero, and it'll boot into permissive mode. Uh, there is also uh, is it se Linux equal se Linux equals zero, which will boot into disabled mode. I don't like booting into disabled mode because of the problem with files not getting labeled correctly. So I recommend enforcing equals zero. But if for whatever reason that's not doing it for you, you could say se Linux equals zero instead. Yep. I also gave a scary warning about uh, lots of log files being generated, or lots of log messages being generated in a short amount of time and using up all my disk space. That's not a common occurrence. That was the combination of using a beta version of Fedora and doing a whole lot of file I.O. in a limited amount of time. So. Yes, there is a difference between beta versions of Fedora and release versions. The beta versions are even more unstable. <laughs> We're all ready to call it a night. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.